This is Lead with a Question. In being more thoughtful, more forgiving, more long-suffering, more uh, gentle persuasion, more love unfeigned, more of these being qualities, you lay that on your life today and you're going to find exponentially more happiness, joy, and fulfillment over here than being in any kind of transactional relationship with other human beings or even God himself. Hi, I'm Rob Callan. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Let's assume for a minute that you've just landed your dream job. Your new employer is a household name. Your title is the envy of thousands. And of course, you're well paid. But what would you do if you found yourself miserable with your new situation? Our guest today faced that very situation. But through some soul searching and a life-changing conversation on a flight, he found his path forward and also discovered a few things about life love, and football. He'll help us consider the question, how can we become more selfless leaders? A conversation with former NFL MVP quarterback and author Steve Young on this episode of Lead with a Question. Let's set the stage. Um, you know, how do I like? Yeah, you, you have to be a sports fan to kind of have the analogy. But um, Tom Brady is Joe Montana back in the late '80s when I joined the 49ers. Um, Bill Walsh, who was a coach, was like Bill Belichick. It was like that big of you know. It's like same, and it would be like Bill Belichick bringing in another quarterback to compete against Tom Brady, and all the awkwardness of it. Like right. for years, like pushing me onto the field, telling Tom Brady that like Steve's going to play today. So just, you know, get ready for that. Like just creating controversy. Bill Walsh created controversy with Joe and I. And so it was always awkward. Think about all the teammates that loved Tom Brady, that loved everything he's done for them and how they're so in, they're all so connected. And and now here's this interloper, this this fraud. Right. Like so. My experience joining the 49ers was really rough. And I was just, me, I was just trying to make it go like, I'm here and I don't, you know, what do you want me to do? I'm, <laughs> I got to go. And so, uh, so that was four years of that. And then Joe couldn't play that 1991 season. So I played. So it was my, suddenly it was my season to take. And I was struggling and the team was struggling. And everything that happened was, well, if Joe was here, it'd be fine, right? But because he's not, it's Steve's problem. 
the way I took that in over the weeks was just to feel the weight of it more and more and to describe depression or victimization or a hole uh, that you dig for yourself. You'd have to have lived, you have to have had that experience in your life to say, oh yeah, oh, I know what that hole looks like. I, I've been, I've been in a hole like that. Um, and that's why it's hard. Cause if you have me, you're like, Oh yeah, you know, what's the big deal? What's the problem? But I was in a, I was in a pretty dark space for me where I didn't really have a way out. I thought I'm trapped here and I can't, it's just getting worse. I'm not sleeping. I'm not, I'm not functioning. I'm not even playing well. I feel like everything else is everyone else's fault. It's not me. Everyone keeps pointing at me, but it's truly, I'm the victim. I'm the victim here. It was just a mentality of, Oh, what a mess. And, uh, that's when I got on the plane and ran into Stephen Covey, uh, uh, coming back from Salt Lake city. I'd gone to Salt Lake to just for the day off for 24 hours just to get out of town. Just like, I don't know, smell different air. And I got back on the plane to come back to San Jose and there he was. And he asked me how I was doing. And I'd met him a couple times just briefly. And I said, and so I just let him have it. I told him all that I just described to you, but in greater detail. And he, I finished my rendition of this terrible place that wasn't my fault, but had been, you know, I was victimized here and now I'm not sleeping and I'm not, I'm, I'm in depression and I'm, I'm in a terrible place. And so I finished and he says, wow, Steve, that's whew, it's heavy. It's a lot. Man, I feel that. It's, it's, whew. Can I ask you a couple of questions? I go, sure. Uh, one, your owner, Eddie DeBartolo, tell me about him. And I just, well, Eddie DeBartolo is the first owner to look at players, not as chattel, but as human beings, uh, partners even. Uh, it's amazing. The family. I mean, he's just incredible. And went on and he goes, ah. I finished with that. And he goes, oh, yeah, I, I really want to meet Eddie DeBartolo. I, I really feel like he would have a lot to add to some of the stuff that I'm doing in the seven habits world. Seems like he has a lot of stuff to, I can't wait to meet him. I said, tell me about your coach, Bill Walsh. And I go, oh my gosh, you know, three generations ahead of everybody in offense and how he looks at players, uh, their mental, emotional, physical health, nutrition, sleep, like things that co football coaches just are so archaic that I haven't even thought of. He's so far ahead. And he's like, yeah, I really want to meet him too. He's such an interesting fellow. I think he could be helpful too to me. And what I'm doing here, he goes, huh? And then let me ask one last question. Joe Montana is still on the team, right? And I go, yeah, he's hurt, but he's still there every week, every day, just standing there. That's 90% of the problem. He says, yeah, but if you could ask him a question, find out as a mentor, if you could, you know, could you do that? And I go, well, yeah, I guess I could go. And he has a lot of experience. Yeah, I could do that. He goes, all right. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to take this, but I'm just going to tell you flat out how I feel about the situation. I travel the world to Stephen Covey looking for organizations, corporations, families, offices, whatever it is that have built platforms for large numbers of, of humans to be on the platform and given the opportunity to consistently iterate to see how good they can get. And then I find those qualities and then I want to amplify them to the world. Because I want the, every human being to have the chance to be associated with the organization that they are associated with and see them and their potential and then how to do it. So that's what I do. That's seven habits.
And so I got to be honest with you, as I travel the world, I'm always looking for these organizations. And then listening to you and listening to the situation you're in and kind of kind of gleaning through all the things that are going on, I don't know that I have ever seen a better opportunity for another human being in my life than the one that you have. He said it just like that. And I was like, I wanted to duck, right? I'm like, you, oh my you gosh. cannot be talking to me. <laughs> like, there's no way you just said that. But I just told you all this disaster. I mean, I'm in a disaster situation. And you're going to respond to me with, you're the luckiest man alive. I mean, ah, that is not. I wanted to hear how right I was. Like, I wanted to hear like, oh, that's terrible. And he turned and told me, I'm the luckiest man alive. But wow. when he said it, I knew he was right. Like, I knew immediately that I had screwed this up. I, I remember the sick feeling coming over me that was different than the sick feeling I was already feeling. It was a sick feeling of not victimization and not depression and not a hole. But like, oh, my gosh, I have dug all the dirt out of this hole and I've literally placed myself here. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't I can't believe this has happened. And so he kind of watched me go through all that transition as it happened right in front of him. He goes, Steve, I can see that, you know, you have a sense that maybe I'm, I might be right. And I said, I do. Painful, but I do. He says, but it's still not the real question I want to ask you. The real question I want to ask you is, do you want to see how good you can get? He says, because asking that question, if you're honest about it, that question should scare you. Because in the end, the answer to that question, how good you are, and even the question of how good you can get, because you're not sure, is full of fear. Like, maybe I'm not very good. Maybe I'm going to find out that I'm not good at all. But the, the one thing I want to tell you is that question and getting authentically answered is the key. Because then you can see the quest in front of you, see where you are and see where you want to get, and then recognize that, that you're in a great spot to go do that. So let me ask you, do you want to find out how good you can get? And I said, absolutely, I do. I wouldn't be here if I didn't want to. He says, okay, but you know that's going to mean that you're going to find out that maybe you're not as good as you think you are, but you can iterate and fix it. And this is the platform to go do that. I go, I'm in. I'm in for all of it. And I left that that plane flight and like was my my biggest fear then had become, oh my gosh, did I screw this up? Have I moaned and complained and miserated, I don't know if that's a word, all the way to actually losing my job. Wednesday morning you go to work, that's when people get fired. And I kind of sensed that they were rumors and like maybe Steve, maybe we bench him. And I thought again, well, because yeah, you guys are not supporting me and blah, 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 blah. But in the end, am I going to get benched? And I was, I was afraid that that was going to happen. And I remember racing down there in the morning, just like, please tell me I still have my job. And, and it really did change me. Like I did, it did flip things. It doesn't make it easier. My job did not get easier. My got my job became more clear. 
And that's what made the difference for me. Clarity and perspective of what I'm really trying to do. Rather than getting bogged down in all the peripheral mitigation that was running around in my life, that was true. Joe Montana was on the team. Joe Montana, it was the king. Everyone did blame me for everything. Like, those are not not true. But they're actually not not useful. Like, they're not really, they're not, for, they're not yours. Like, leave behind the things that are not yours. And start to focus on things that are yours. And that's what Stephen Covey did for me is kind of very succinctly, very dramatically, completely changing the orbit of my thinking so that I went to work the next day desperate to keep my job, even though I know it was going to be hard, even though I might not be as good as I thought I was, even though I might, you know, like all of it. And I, I tell this joke about seeing Troy Aikman warming up with the Cowboys. This is the next season now. and uh, um, and. We're at the 50-yard line working back into the end line, so that's how you warm up at the NFL. And so you you see each other at the 50. And, and I see Troy Aikman, and, and I remember I ran up to him. We were friends, and I go, Troy, so great to see you, man, because I'm on this quest to see how good I can get, and I can't find out unless I play the best. And you guys are the best, so this is like the greatest opportunity in my life. And I almost kind of half-hugged him, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I remember yeah. Troy looking like... <laughs> you're weird. You know what I mean? Like, but that's how, who is this guy? I, you know, nine months later, a year later, how much it had changed my, my mindset and, and, and clarified what I was really about so that I could start to actually, you can't do the work until you understand. I'm, I was essentially digging a hole, jumping in the hole and then blaming everyone around me for all the facts that I saw and then not sleep. Like, I've done it to myself in many ways. And I think that's the, if that's what you wanted, that was the story of Steve Covey. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. That's such a powerful uh, story because, you know, the, well, there's, we could, we could talk about that story for an hour, really, because all right. the offshoots of what happened, I will close that story out by saying the next season, 1992, I was the MVP of the league. Incredible. Like from the deep hole yeah. to the, like, I, I, I don't know how that happens, but this is part of it. Yeah, and as as an outsider, I mean, I remember watching games uh, with my dad, and you know, we'd see, you know, see you on the sideline, and you know, and you know, of course, Joe Montana, you know, he could throw the deep passes, you know, and you know, and once that happened, when you were in that, I, you could see in your countenance, like, I, you know, and I asked my dad, I'm like, what, you know, what's going on? Like, but when you, that shift happened, it was also very noticeable, and of course, I mean, the 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 impact, right, and the success that you uh, you were able to garner, but like the mindset shift that that's all inside. Oh my gosh. It's perspective. It was gaining proper, true perspective. Again, the job didn't get easier. It just got clearer. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of revealing itself as I'm listening to that, that story is that yes, the context was football. You know, you were in a very specific role with a very specific job to do, maybe even one of the loneliest roles on a football team. Um, but that that specific narrative, you could you could, you know, swap out the specific job and there could be a very similar experience that that others have been in and or or other people oh, currently Rob, find themselves in right you, now. Everyone. This is I've always said what happens on the field is the truth because there's a line field. There's there's 80,000 witnesses. 
There's no lying. There's a score. There's a clock. Like if life was that way, there would be clarity. Like you didn't have to wonder. But because what happens on the football field is true, it just resonates outward to everyone's experience. And I can tell you that I watch my language even today. I watch my language to to watch for mitigation, watch for language of mitigation, watch for language of accountability, and listen to myself. And and the power in watching for the the natural excuses that are real, like they're facts. Like when I would say, "Why did that happen on the field?" Well, because you turned the wrong way. What's true? They're both true. You turn the wrong way, and I threw the interception. Like, they're both true. And if I'm not careful, I will blame the interception on you turning the wrong way, when really, deep down, the ultimate true truth is that I threw it to the other team. Like, that's what happened. I want, I, because I'm the one who threw it, want to talk about the mitigation. I want to talk about all the things that went wrong. Because I don't want you to think I did this on purpose. Like, that would be a disaster. So I want to tell you all that. And so I speak mitigation and the people that hear mitigation respond in mitigation, right? Well, then, you know, you're not as good as I thought. And you're, uh, you know, where's Joe Montana now? You know, like, like you want to talk, you want to think in mitigation, you're in a paradigm of mitigation. You're going to get answers and, and results and people around you, they're going to speak the same language. And then if you speak accountability and you speak a sense of, 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 you know, kind of true truths, um, that's the key that, that took me, that Steve Covey led me to, that allowed for me to start. And now I, now I hear you talk about, Rob, you said people in other walks of life can, can have similar situations, 100%. And what I would tell them, tell anyone listening, watch your language, because you're going to have a language. I've always said, you can take a piece of paper, put a line down the middle, put mitigation on one side and accountability on the other. And every football game in the NFL, there's a loser. And every losing team has a quarterback. And every game they do a post game and ask the losing quarterback, then the number one question, what happened? And I just listen. Just put your ear to it and just make marks. And all the mitigation that you hear is a guy that's going to be doing the same thing next week. And all the accountability is a guy that probably has a shot to not be doing this next week. And I don't care what play's called. I don't care. It is fundamental to how you're going to perform. And so anyway, give that to anybody because that language, I watched that language in my marriage. Like, am I, that, that language sounded like a mitigating bunch of crap. And I'm like, oh, I want to read, I want to restate that. Honey, can I restate that? I don't think we I did. said that the way I wanted to. I give you that too, because that's a powerful, powerful way daily to watch and watch for language from other people too. And go, look, that sounds like a lot of mitigation. I understand how real that is to you. But what we really want to grab is the accountability. I'm, my kids, raising kids, same kind of thing. You know, with awareness about how you how you interpret the conditions of your world. Look what happened with Steve Covey. I would interpret all the conditions of my world to be in a deep, dark hole. Steve Covey says, no, 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 you're, 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 you've, you've, you've informed your own life the wrong way. You've, you've lied to yourself, in essence. And stop, what does Steve Covey say? Stop lying to yourself. You know what I mean? That's what he said yes. to me. <laughs> Steve, um, you know, going to, to the, your latest book, The Law of Love, that you just released, um, I love the story that you shared in the intro 
about Charles Haley. I think uh, this falls in line with what we're talking about. And a lot of it, you know, I, I, lo- I heard from somebody recently about um, how even your enemies, you could start to look at them differently when you're close up. And at the core of that, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, we're afraid. We're afraid that others are different from us. And, and so we judge, you know, we uh, make assumptions um, and we become guarded. And I think that's similar to that situation that you outlined in your book. Maybe speak to that a little bit and, and how that changed and shifted uh, relationship wise. Ian, thanks for that question, because where it takes me is that a lot of times we live in a place where we actually believe we need enemies. And so we inform them that way. In other words, I'm so used to having people up against me that I need more, like, you must be one too. And then pretty soon we've just othered the whole world. Um, Charles Haley, we're, we, we, we couldn't be better friends today. You know, just laugh and even laugh about even the hardships. Um, and I didn't, that story was not in the book until the last second. Cause somebody had, I had two or three or four people trusted people to read it. Cause to just to make sure that it wasn't nuts. And, uh, and one of the feedback was like, I'm not, I want to catch something up front. And I said, well, I have this story about Charles Haley getting on a, you know, he's just torturing me. Charles was a whip smart human being that by his own admission now was working with working through a bipolar uh, condition that was unmedicated at the time. And so he was predatory, especially to me. It seemed like he was like particularly focused on me and he would say things and embarrass me at any chance he could. It was so much so that I would, I would come into the parking lot in the morning coming to work or to practice and I would see if his car was there. And if his car was there, I would enter into the, through the door for the equipment room. I wouldn't go to the locker room. I wouldn't go like through the front door. I'd go through the equipment room and I, I'd kind of figure out where he was. And he usually was in the training room. That's where he kind of held court. And I would never go there, but I didn't, in case he was in the locker room, I didn't want to go in there. And I would spend an inordinate amount of time in the training, in the equipment room, hiding in the back with the shoulder pads and the jerseys. <laughs> like wow. I was in my world. I was, I was playing for the 49ers hiding from Charles Haley. And uh, the story goes, they get on the bus to, uh, from a plane ride to Seattle to the hotel, probably 10, 15 minutes. And I was late getting on the buses because I usually wanted to figure out, make sure where Charles was, I'd go on the other bus. But I was late getting off the plane, talking to the coach, whatever it was. I jumped on the last bus and the last seat. Classically story, it's Charles Haley. And I remember looking at him and him kind of motioning, sit down. And I'm like, oh, he has, does he have a knife? Like, is he going to actually knife me Like, when I sit down? You know, like, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And we stayed quiet for a second. And uh, he turns to me and goes, are you married? <laughs> and I go, no, I'm not. He goes, oh, I thought all Mormons are married. And I'm like, well, no, not this one. And and then I responded to, I heard your wife has got, you know, is ill and, and not well. Uh, is she okay? And he goes, 
Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, no, I don't remember the struggle. The struggles were going on and and um, talked about her for a little bit. And, and it was interesting for him to be married and have a wife like I could imagine. I thought he would be like living in a like a dark hole. And you know, what I mean, like I just my vision for him. A bachelor. And that just started a, I started a normal conversation that ended with what happened was he thought he had images of me that created in him an anger who he thought I was. And, and I was responding with the same kind of response. Like this guy's an angry guy and I need to avoid him. And so like, inevitably you just see people as you see them and you respond to them, how you see, how you respond to them, but never really seeing them. And we never had the opportunity. So gratefully that happened because what happened from that little conversation, I, I remember when we wrote it in the book, I'm like, there's no real dramatic ending here. So I'm kind of not sure what you want to put in the book that I want to put it in there. I but I was it, like, yeah. well, no, because it just, it captures the seeing of other humans. And that's, that's what happened. And we did. So he, from that point on, because of that conversation, the really negative, terrible, predatory parts of him with me went away. He still teased me. He still was, you know, he still, but it was never again as terrible as, as that. And that's, and that just came from him seeing me a little bit differently, me seeing him a little bit differently and just having a little relationship that's now built into a, a great friendship. And so most of the enemies in the end, there's a perspective that we've taken that have, it's kind of doom loop. You know what I mean? You see me, right. I see you. And pretty soon we're just in a doom loop and that's happening politically today. Just, I mean, you know, it's just, you don't even have to be very smart to see how terrible this is and how much of a doom loop we're in and how really smart people, because they think it's inevitable, jump in the doom loop as well. Just cause it's like, well, I don't have a choice. And so, you know, it, it, these are all basic fundamental interactions of human beings. And so the law of love, Fundamentally, from a theological perspective, my case is that the law of love is the, if the, all the laws of God that are described in the scriptures through prophets, the law of love is the supreme law. It is the law in the highest orbit. And to you, and you can't mix other laws of obedience or chastity or anything else with it. It is on its own. And when it's on its own, it is the most powerful, it's kind of not of this world. Selfless love is not of this world. This world is transactional. Eat what you kill, sweat of your brow. We're all in this, you know, kind of challenge, right? We're all going to die. We're all kind of trying to survive. We're all trying to learn and grow. And like, it's a rough, it's rough down here. But there's a law, supreme law of heaven which governs heaven, which is not of this world, that if we could enact in our lives, which is selfless love for other humans, we can actually have little elements of heaven on earth. And that's the book is about. It's fundamental principle is that there's a, there's a separation, a chasm, a canyon between transactional relationships with heaven, transactional obedience, loyalty, all the other words of transaction and the law of love, selfless love over here is a place that uh, there's a bridge and the book's trying to make a bridge to this place that if you start every day from a perspective of every relationship, I'm going to be, not do, 
over here, transactional world is things to do to please heaven. Over here is things to be to please heaven. And in being in being more thoughtful, more forgiving, more long suffering, more uh, gentle persuasion, more love unfeigned, more of these being qualities. You lay that on your life today, and you're going to find exponentially more happiness, joy, and fulfillment over here than being in any kind of transactional relationship with other human beings or even God Himself. So that's the idea. Yeah, you know it. Reminds me of, there's another experience that was uh, written about that uh, you shared when, uh, and, and I guess this ties into the thought, you know, you just shared about the power of love. And, you know, in, in the context, if we go back to sport, the sports analogy, right, you could look at a lot of how these teams operate and how you know, people think about sports and it can be divisive, right? There's, you know, it's like competition and, you know, winners, losers and, and, you know, and yet it seems like some of the best teams uh, have a culture where they're winning together. There's a collaborative kind of co-creation, right. To what they're doing, there's abundance. And, you know, there's an experience that uh, was shared or you shared that, uh, you know, the team was kind of coming at you or had made a joke or kind of mocking you. And then Ronnie Lott kind of stood up and, and, you know, said, right, I've got his back. Right. And this seems like something like that's, that's that principle in, in, in motion or, you know, in play. And I'm, I'm curious, like your thoughts about how people, you know, in, in teams and organizations, you know, in, in their lives and their families, uh, and, you know, in politics, how people can do more of that and have each other's back. Yeah. You know, there, there is, I, 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 the more I live and think about this selflessness, it's some, there are human beings that live in a selfless m mentality it's natural to them, but not many. A lot of us, like myself, very much about a can-do guy. Tell me what to do, to be good or great, and I'll I'll go do it. Whether that's theologically, whether that's professionally, whether like give me a list, <laughs> I'll go get it done. Where there's others that just selflessly see other human beings, and so there's when you talk about organizations and the Ronnie Lott story when he when he stopped practice and said, look, you know, my dad told me when I was a kid. That when, that no matter where I went, no matter what I did, no matter what happened, that he had my back. I will always be there for you. He said, that's the most powerful thing he ever told me. And he stopped practicing because he knew that I, as awkward as I guys described to you guys earlier about the Joe Montana and being forced in there and how awkward it was. And people, people started to make fun of me publicly in practice, which is, you don't see that in, in, in sports. It's just very odd. And he said, look, he stopped it and he said, look, I want, he told me, but he told everyone the story about his dad. He said, and I want Steve Young to know that no matter what happens on this team, no matter where we go or what we do, I got his back. And that just changed everyone's like that healed all of the awkwardness. And so they could see, they actually could see me. Like, it wasn't just this guy, this interloper. This guy. They're like, Oh my gosh, there's Steve. Like they could see me. And because of that, they made space for that. And, uh, and I think any, any relationships that you have, you can start to think about them in this selfless love way. Like how would I do? And that can be, look, I don't encourage anyone to be in a relationship that is caustic or toxic or abusive or un, like 
or unsafe or like, this is not about that. What this is about is how you look at relationships, no matter what they are. How do I see the relationship for me? And so for me, how I want to start, what I want to add to this relationship is an, uh, an element of seeing you, of selflessness. And that's the only way you can do it is when you kind of lose what I'm looking for, what I get or whatever, all the transactional parts of it. And it's hard to do. Once you start thinking about it, it's like, geez, it's amazing how much I do that has subtleties to transaction, some benefit that I get, some, even, even as wonderful as like, it makes me feel good is still a transaction, right? Like, so to eliminate transaction is hard, but there is something about all the teams and places I've been where business or anywhere else that if you can start to th have your mind think about se what selflessness really is and how do I actually start? Because what happens is selflessness catapults you outwards. It just throws you into people's like lives and in there. How are you doing? Like you get overwhelmed. You're like, I can't be involved in so many people's lives, but that's the spirit of it, right? And then you have to manage it because we're in a world where we're going to die, when we're all kind of trying to make a way. We're like, we're in an entropic world. So it's like, scientifically, we get where we are, but there's this other ability. And so I want to leave you with another thought about Rodney Lott, another concept that he taught that I don't think he meant really to be a teaching moment, but it was like super powerful, is that even in the natural competition of this world we live in because everything is pretty competitive right how do we how do we find this this higher law in the day-to-day -day? and he said that uh, he well i go back real quickly the 49ers one year we would won so many games that the last game of the year of the regular season we didn't need to win we'd already wrapped up home field advantage all the stuff we'd you know and so the last game was kind of for fun and so we played it that way it was like ah you know you know, some backups played and everything else. And it was against the Minnesota Vikings, I remember, in Minnesota. And we ended up losing the game, but it didn't matter. So it was like people rested guys, guys got healthy. But the New York Giants needed us to beat Minnesota for them to get in the playoffs. And when we didn't play to win, Phil Sims, the quarterback, called, he said they lay, the 49ers laid down like dogs. That inflamed Ronnie Lott. Oh, Ronnie was so frustrated and mad about that. And he thought about it for six, eight months until, until we played the Giants the next year. And we're warming up. And he goes over to Phil Sims. And I remember he confronted him. And usually in, the, in, a, in a football atmosphere with all the supercharged emotions, if someone gets into that kind of a in your face, everyone jumps in, right? Like, oh, it's a big, it's a big scramble. But no one touched it because it was Ronnie. And they knew what had happened the year before. So they just allowed it to happen. And he was screaming and yelling at Phil and blah, blah, blah. And then, and I couldn't hear it. And afterwards, you know, I, I was interested. I said, Ronnie, what, what were you yelling at, at Phil? And he goes, he doesn't understand that there is a sacred space in competition, that we are in it together. We cannot learn. We cannot make it profitable. That competition is profitability for both sides. Winners and losers need to be respected because then we can learn the full measure of the competition. The competition's wasted if we're not going to be respectful of each other and allow the losers and winners to grow. I'm out here today. I can win or I can lose, but I'm out here because I'm going to learn. And I was like, whoo. That is amazingly said, 
because he says, if you disrespect me as a competitor, you disrespect the, the, the enormity of what could happen out here. And competition is this phenomenally sacred space. And I was like, I never really thought I just I was back in the dirt, right? Winners and losers. You're a loser. I'm a winner. Like I was he elevated my thinking about how to see even the competitive forces of the world could be looked at in an abundant way. And that's when it started to click into my mind, this idea of abundance, despite the rigor of the world today and all of its entropic scientific nature, there is a way for you to fold that and raise it up and find abundance in the actual competition. In the winning and losing, there's a place where we can actually elevate it and it needs to be guarded. That's what Ronnie was saying. It's like, it needs to be guarded because it's precious. And before long, and if you don't guard it, the easiest thing to do is be human nature. You know, just, you know, you just devolve into this place of what we see out in the world every day. And so I, I love the idea of elevating conversations, you know, relate in Powerful. relationships. Yeah. How can I elevate the conversation? How can I elevate and find the full measure of this relationship that I have? You know, it's yeah. caustic. It's terrible. Oh, even abusive doesn't mean that I'm going to put up with you daily. But how do I approach? We have a relationship. Maybe it's by distance. Maybe it's but I have a spirit of how I want to approach it. That's going to try to find an abundant way to even though and it might look a lot of relationships never heal. The other side never takes full responsibility. Accountability is never taken. And so you, you but. But how do I approach every relationship? How do I, how do I, in, in that way, Ronnie's describing a way for the true healing nature for yourself. Like yeah. the abundance mentality in the selflessness, it's the irony. It's the amazing irony of this world that we live in, that in the, in the effort of selflessness to reach this place of otherworldly, in a way, heavenly space, what ironically comes back is everything that you need. The very That's nature amazing. of the effort to lose yourself and others, you find this inspiration, joy this uh, that comes back to you because you don't seek it. It's the craziest, ironic thing in life. And like, and, and, but it's hard to do because we're, we're naturally looking for what's mine and how do I protect myself and how do I make sure that I have enough? Well, I, I need air. I need food. I need shelter. I need I need all these things. I'm going to gather them and hold them close. And you mean I lose all my like? It's just counterintuitive, but it's the most important. And that's why I, I said, you know, I, I was teaching this in in church for 15 years, and finally, people in my class are like Steve, you got to write this down, like because you're every every time I come to class, I'm like I learn more, it, it expounds my thoughts more, I get more out of it. And like you got to write it down. It took me five years to kind of put it down on paper. And then this is the, that's the book. It's just my effort to try to describe this incredible process for me. That was the the irony hit me back so abundantly that I was like, I I should write it down. You know, if there's anything for anybody else, I should write it down because if there's one person that can feel like I do about this, I should I should write it down. So that's what it is. Yeah, that's amazing because you know so often in people's lives they you know, the default is such can be such a limited view 
of life, of leadership. The default is natural. I'm yeah. talking about, Chris, I'm talking about something that's a little unnatural, right? It's not of this rigor. And that's what Ronnie, Ronnie was unnaturally looking for abundance in a place that that's winners and losers, bro. What do you, don't, don't mess with it. It's just, it's, 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 it's it is what it is. It's an eat what you kill world. It's like, just live it. And Ronnie's like, no, no, it is not that way. You might think it's that way. I have another way to see it. And I think that's what got me started on this whole abundance way. Yeah, that, that's amazing too, because I remember uh, he was one of my favorite players as well. You were uh, Ronnie and, you know, just such a great defensive, you know, force. And um, I think he must've been the captain of your defense, uh, the Niners. And Oh, you, you know, not, everybody. Not, yeah, but like not the biggest guy, right? Uh, maybe not not even the fastest, but, you know, having that kind of wisdom, right? Uh, um, what you're sharing, you know, kind of behind the curtain, it just makes sense, yeah. right? That when people have that level of seeing and, you know, he probably had asked himself the other question you'd asked or that Covey had asked you um, about, you know, how good you think you can get and then taking it yeah. to a different level, right? As you're sharing now about abundance. Wow. Yeah, if we can, if we think about it, if you can get the mitigation out of your life, which takes the victimization out of your life. So, I, I mean, I, I, I watch it for myself, so I watch it in others. And so because I'm vigilant about and how vulnerable I am to these issues in my own life, I see how vulnerable other people are into it. And I see them suffering into old age with old victimization and old mitigation and old natural relationships that have not found abundance and just worn people down and created a lifetime of, of, of pain, you know, and, 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 and I, and going back to Steve Covey and so much of it's self-inflicted that people don't realize how much everyone thinks it's what's been done to them. And they don't realize how much is in our control and how we see the, you know, what looks like a time, go back to Covey, like the, what looked terrible was actually an amazing opportunity and it was just perspective. And I think that's why the whole Ronnie Lott thing, just if we can, every relationship we have can try to find its abundance and and speak the words of that and speak the, the potential of that. And, and people are saying, oh, Steve, that's Pollyanna. That's just positive, positive thinking, positive. I'm, I'm over that. The world is just not that space, you know, and I'm, you know, oh yeah, self-help books. Let's get 20 of them and let's just try to self-help. You know, it's like, stop, like, don't, don't diminish the fundamentals of what I'm describing. Quit trying to just ride in the muck and then have a, another mitigating factor. Like I'm describing to you, don't cheapen it. Like Ronnie Lott would say, Phil Sims, don't cheapen it. Because if you cheapen it with me, we're in it. To, we're in it together. So if you're cheapening it, it kind of affects me too. So let's let's raise up together. And I think that's what he was saying. Yeah, one of the quotes from the book that just really struck me a lot, and this I think can be applied in our relationships, but also at work, um, is where it says we sometimes think we're supposed to love people back onto our path instead of respecting their own journey, no expectations, no transaction. And I've, I've experienced that as a recipient in my own life. And also as someone who's been, you know, dishing out what I thought was, was, you know, totally altruistic help for someone else when really I was just kind of hoping that they would, 
you know, land in the spot that I, that I wanted them to be in. So, um, how, how would you say that that particular principle could apply, uh, in, in the workplace since a lot of the people who, uh, listen to our show are working professionals? You know, because I was successful quarterback, I knew how to be successful. Like by definition, right? I'm successful. So therefore I know success. And so if someone came to me and said, how do I be successful? Well, do it like me. And then I would describe it to people that were looking for mentorship. And I'm like, well, yeah, just I can show you how to do it. And then what I recognize is that success can actually be authored in a lot of different ways than how I did it. And once that dawned on me, I realized that I'm just jamming people into my my way. And it might be done differently in a very successful way. And then the longer I was around, the more I realized they're doing it better than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I should watch them a little bit more. And it came from a different place. And so if you take that out to its natural ending – you can't you, this again it goes back to that selflessness to get to the place where you lose you know and just see see someone and you can add like you can add, i can tell you and and mentor you in a selfless way in other words i can tell you my experience i can tell you how i see it, it doesn't limit you at all but it comes from a spirit of of i want you to find the best way to take that in, best way to, to go forward. And it might not be how, like, recognize, like, I don't, in some ways, I don't want to know what's the right way for you. Like you, because in the end, I, part of my theology is that every human being is here to, to learn and grow and, and become more heavenly in our qualities. And how do we do that is, in different cultures, different languages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions, different, like, how do we support each other rather than trying to jam everyone into my, my, like, oh, yeah, I got this path. Come, let me jam you down here and everything will go great. Uh, let's just not think about it that way. That's that transactional mindset. Let's leave that. And allow for, and if someone organically says, look, Steve, your path, I really like that. Well, then come on. But it's, but it's completely selflessly motivated because then someone, so then because someone chose your path, then it's truly authentic. Like they're not, you jam people on your path. What they'll do is they'll, they'll go for an exit or two. And then they're like, ah, I don't, I, this, this is not for me. But if someone authentically joins you in your path with this selflessness, they're, they've chosen, like they're not going to exit they're, They like it and it's profitable to them and it makes them feel good. So again, we all love people to, to go our way or do things the way that we do them, but we're, in some ways we're damning them or wasting their time so they can authentically find their place. Why would they want to come along for a couple of exits if they're just going to find another way out? Like it, that's why the law of love is ever is the headwaters because it's the most efficient. It's the most 
powerful. It's the most healing. It's the most like you never like just use all the words you want. It just pours out forever. Like that's why it's the supreme law of heaven because it's it's undefeated forever. Yeah, it's like a it's a paradox, right, for people though, because so many people kind of their starting point is, you know, what's in it for me, right? What's the benefit of this? And you know, what you're describing is a world where, and in many ways, like what Martin Luther King Jr. described, what many people have lived, right, and shown us that it's not just possible, but when you have that kind of abundance, uh, you know, it unlocks possibilities that weren't there before. The innovation that can happen right? What teams can do together. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, like Covey would say one plus one equals, you know, a thousand, right? It's like way more than, or, you know, three, five, 10, you know, whatever it multiplies. Well, this is where Chris this is where the cynics hang out, right? This is where the cynics can go. Oh, Steve, come on, man. You know, what are you doing here? Are you trying to like, blah, 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 you know? And that's, that's what happens is people try to, they don't understand it or they don't see its incredible potential. And so then it becomes something they can mock or make fun of. But I wrote a book because I have experienced this in every way, in my marriage, in my raising kids, in my business life, in my football life, in uh, on the street, in uh, at the um, today when I was at the green, uh, when I was at the left turn lane behind somebody and the light turned green and they didn't move. We're in a relationship. What is the most healing way to deal with that relationship at that moment, right? And I found it's really to just take a couple of breaths and let the person figure out that like it turned green. And maybe if it stays green for a little too long, then it's like a little beep, just like, hey, you know, so that they can, because all you do is, you know, as soon as it turns green, they don't move. And then now you're on your horn and then, then they're like, flip you off. And it's like, you know, this is, so this is what I'm talking about. It's like every relationship you have can be raised. And I think it's fun to think about what it can do to your life. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Steve Young for joining us today. His book, The Law of Love, is available wherever books are sold, along with his sports memoir, QB, My Life Behind the Spiral. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at Brave Core, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of Brave Core LLC. Thanks for being with us.